very much tied into a lot of deep stuff, but the function of the tabernacle was to reveal the existence of God. So the parallel that the Medrash makes is on the surface is a very difficult one. When God was creating a physical world which was constructed to create concealment, it came a point where God said, die enough. But when we're creating a Mishkan, that the function of the Mishkan is to reveal the existence of God, where does the word die enough come in? When you're dealing with when you're dealing with the physical so God says enough concealment, die. But what's the parallel? The way God says the physical world dies, so too Moshe says to the people that we're bringing down. What's the parallel? So the answer to this, now you might think that this is nitpicking and then you just use the word die, but let me just um, refer to another medrash, which is a fascinating medrash. The person that was responsible for much of the, the doings in terms of putting together the different things of the Mishkan was the Tzalel, right? The which is a combination of two words, sail tail, in the shadow of God. In other words, in the presence, in the cognizance of God. The Medrash says that sail tail, if he was in the sail, he was, so to speak, working in the shadows or under the influence of God. So the Medrash says, yes, the sail, the sail tail, or the sail shaka. In the, in the shadow of the name Shin Dalegyun. So the Medrash again makes the reference that the Tzal's functioning in the Mishkan was with one particular shadow of God. Which shadow? Which conduct of God? That conduct of Shin Dalegyun. So this is by no means any kind of coincidence that Moshe said that. So what is it supposed to mean? It's very simple. It's very simple. Because in the same way that in the physical world, the intention of the physical world was to create concealment, it's true that when it came to the building of the Mishkan, the building of the tabernacle, it was to function to bring out the realization of Hashem, the realization of God, but we were using physical mediums. We were using gold and silver and copper. And you most probably have heard the question many times. I don't know if you ever heard a good answer to the question. But I'm sure you've heard the question that Yidden don't believe, Jews don't believe in, you know, being ostentatious. And certainly our, our places of prayer, you get ten people together, you have a secretary, you have some sedurim, with cheers, without cheers, with coughing, without coughing, with stained windows, without stained windows, it's all insignificant. If the relationship of the dialogue that the person has with God is the most significant thing. And Jews through the centuries have been known to find every odd nook and cranny. It came time to daven. That was the place to daven. And the definition of the tefillahs weren't in any way diminished because it wasn't on a three-inch plush coffin. And it had nothing to do with it. In Yiddish, fact, that's not the concept of what the place of tefillah is about. Obviously, if you can afford it, you do make a place of tefillah, a nice place, but that was, that's not the central thing. So this is a problem when it comes to the mission. It's a real problem. So however you resolve that problem, which is certainly not what I want to get into tonight, but there was a very delicate balance where you were using gold, silver, all of these different things, and within a unique prescription they would be able to create an atmosphere that would reveal God's presence. 
In other words, there was a certain prescription, how much gold, how much silver, there were exact measurements for everything. It wasn't just left up to, okay, go and be creative. Everything was measured out exactly. Do we know the significance of the measurements? We don't, but we know that each one was precision. And it was all a mirror of God's creation. It was all a mirror of what God wanted of his creation. And it was, so to speak, trying to create a mini-model of the world and a mini model of how God conducts himself in his world. And each thing in the mission was symbolic of something else. So all of the symbolism and all of the different ways that things were constructed all shouted out God and his world and his conduct. Were the, it to go beyond the exact prescription, then it would defeat the entire purpose of bringing out the, the, the existence of God. In other words, in its perfect measurement, than it's mirroring of the world of God. If you're trying to duplicate a picture, if you're trying to make an exact replica of a picture, and then when you finish making the exact replica of the painting, you say, I want to add my own little touch. And I take the brush and I make a swoop across the, across the horizon. It might be the slightest swoop across the horizon, but it's not a replica anymore. It's lost, it's lost is the concept of replica, because now it's different and has something else in it. And that's exactly what Moshe said. In its exact prescription, then it, uh, revel- it re- it's, it's re- telling me what this world is, and it's telling me what God is, and what God conduct me to be the world is. Once you go over the prescription, I don't know what, but that's already your, that's your, your, uh, your swoop across the canvas with your with your own with your own uh, with your own talent with your own creativity and it doesn't act as a mirror anymore. If it doesn't act as a mirror anymore, then it's a physical world outside of the concept of mirroring God's existence. So the same way that God said enough, because I don't want the concealment to be beyond its measure. Moshe said also, in its exact measure, its function, and its purpose. If it goes over its measure, it's going to already introduce concealment because it's not in its exact measure. And that's why when it says that the Salah was the one that was responsible for the Mishkin, it says that he worked under the in- influence of Shindalagyur. What does that mean under that influence? That his major commitment was that every single thing that he constructed, what was the criteria of the construction of the thing? How will it maximize an understanding of God without confusing the person that's going to be studying it and going that, that was his attitude. How can I bring out the picture of God in his world and his conduct to its maximum without overexposing it, without overdoing it and giving a distorted picture? That attitude meant that he had to be linked up with the conduct of Hashem, which is the conduct of Shindology. That's that kind of. So I just felt then, I don't know, I, we're not building a tabernacle, but I thought that it was very, if, if only in terms of to, to support our whole discussion that we had last week about the concept of, of Shindalajud, this is a, a very beautiful support of that concept in its relationship to the mission. Okay, now let's go further. We're at the bottom of page 24. There's a bottle of page 24. I don't bite, by the way. There are a couple of chairs up there if anybody wants to tell me. <laughs> the bottom of page 24. Amr HaNashem. 
th those were all stages that would help a person vacuous. They would qualify the person's vacuous. His cleaving to God, his coming close to God. So obviously, our task now is, who is God? In other words, if we're out to cleave to an individual or form a relationship with an individual, the logical thing to do is find out who that individual is. Just because it happens to be God, that doesn't mean that we don't have to know who it is. Just because it's spelled G-O-D, and it's some kind of awesome concept, doesn't mean that we have to stand back in utter ignorance of trying to understand who God is. It's very interesting, and you must probably have heard this in different veins, but when the Torah talks about the closest relationship between people, even between man and woman, the way the Torah describes it is Vayeda, to know. Vayeda. It says when Adam, when Adam came together with Chava, and they began building a family, and they were bonded in the most intimate relationship, it's how does it, how does the Torah describe it? The Torah doesn't describe it the way the street describes it. The Torah describes it in a very beautiful way. Vayeda Adam is Chava Ishtar. Adam knew his wife, which means that they were bonded by a knowledge and an appreciation of each other. And the knowledge and the appreciation is the quality of the bond. That's the definition. And whenever we know, whenever we have, therefore, the language of Vayeda, the knowledge, the understanding, it automatically is a synonym of the concept of a bond, a connection, a closeness. When it says, for instance, at the beginning of Shmos, it says that God looked down into his world figuratively and saw the suffering of the Jew. God saw everything that was happening to the Jew. And God knew. Now what is that supposed to mean? He saw and he knew. So again, it means the same thing. means that he became intimately involved through the knowledge, through the awareness of what was going on, now God is, there's a change. Gullus is going to end, because God is too close to the scene for Gullus to go on, for the exile, for the situations of exile to go on. So now, when we talk about coming close to God, close doesn't mean in terms of time or space, because we're talking about a God that is not measured physically. So what does coming close to God mean? The word close has to be a borrowed term from kind of some kind of a concept which has nothing to do with proximity in the physical sense of time or space. So what does closeness mean? Closeness means in concept, in understanding, in appreciation. That's what the Dayeda, that's what it means. And this is what Maimonides says. Maimonides says that a person has a requirement to come close to God so Maimonides, at the beginning of the Guide to, to the Perplexed, in his introduction, says very clearly, Maimonides says, what is the requirement to come close to God? To know God. That's what, the, that's what it is. To know God. That's, it's one and the same. Knowing God will create an appreciation of God through understanding God and will create bonds with God. Because then and that's very realistic. That's very, very realistic. Right? 
Now, what the, what the, the author is saying over here is, okay, now we're on an endeavor of understanding God, and by understanding God, developing a relationship with Him, and by developing a relationship with Him, get closer and closer to His emulation and fulfillment of ourselves. I want you to know that as much as you're keenly interested in this relationship, the little that you'll know will be enough. The tipam in ayam, that little, little drop in the ocean, that's going to be more than enough to bond you together in supreme pleasure. That's, that's the sequence of what Rimash Khan is doing now. And now, what the intellect is going to say is, let's study God. What can we study about God? What can we know about God? Okay? This is a very fascinating subject. It is not our classical way that we discuss it. Okay? And there's going to be a lot of new concepts here that we're going to have to digest slowly. So let's just move ahead. After now, if we think to ourselves all of the different orders of the actions of God, because after all, what would be the most logical way of studying God? How do we study a person? We just look glaze eye into the person's eyes and all of a sudden we know the person or we study the person by what they say and uh, very often it's more accurate to study a person not by what they say but what, what, what but with what they do what are they doing because talk is very cheap but what they do is a different story so now when we're talking about God, seemingly the most logical way of trying to get to know God is by what he does. Masa, his actions, the orders of his actions, the systems of his actions. All of the great things, Asherasa, that God did, means some other Malayars, from the time, from the moment that he placed man on earth. And all promises that he made to us of subsequent things that he's going to do. See, in the instance of God, uh, in the instance of God, what he says he's going to do will give us a definition of him also. By people, there's a lot between what you say and what you do. But by God, that, that problem doesn't exist. So it's what he's done, and what he says he's going to do will give us an indication of what he's revealed of himself. The fact that God tells us, this is what I'm going to do, is in a form, a revelation of God to us. If, if God says, these are the things that I did, and these are the things that I'm going to do, now I can study who God is, because God has clearly told me, this is what I want you to know about me, and now go and try to decipher, try to understand it. Now, what is the element that God wants us to know? He knows. What comes out very clearly as the common denominator of everything that God did and promises to do the element which is most significant and most probably nobody in this room including myself would have ever said this is an answer I would have said his power, his compassion, his justice, his this, his that says it's none of the above. It's etzem yichudai. It's his ultimate uniqueness. Okay? His ultimate uniqueness. Right? That is what we are asked to... That is what we can 
discern. That is what we can study. That's what we can appreciate about God. Uniqueness. Okay, now, he's going to explain the theory. I want to first show it to you, to prove it to you, and then there'll be logical ways of, of maintaining this as well. And you're probably all wondering what's so special about discussing uniqueness. You know, he talks about God's wisdom, about his power, his compassion, those are things that we can all relate to. We're attracted to wisdom or compassion or feeling or power or whatever. But uniqueness? Now, what, what do I mean by uniqueness? Just by the way, what, what does uniqueness mean? Uniqueness means that in whatever feature God has, he's supremely unique in that feature. Nobody else is like him. That's what I mean by the word unique. Okay? Right? It's a mistake to define the word here, Yehuda means is oneness. Oneness is very vague. The better word here is uniqueness. Right? Which means that instead of defining, and he's going to explain this in the text, instead of sitting down and trying to decipher God's wisdom, we just come to the final analysis that whatever that wisdom is, it's unique. There is not, no other living living entity that has a wisdom that is unique as God, as great as God, whatever. Right? And if you think for a moment, very logically, if it's wisdom, if it's power, if it's compassion, whatever it is, if you think for a moment logically, there's a very simple reason why our only definition can be the definition of uniqueness. Because were I to sit down and try to understand the extent of how wise God is, <coughs> I admit that God's wiser than me. Right? But I want to know. I want to be able to give a definition to it. Every person automatically has boxed himself out. Because at the point that I don't possess his wisdom, I can't understand his wisdom. If I can't understand it, how can I explain it? If I can't explain it, how can I describe God by that wisdom? In other words, at the point, in other words, realistically speaking, let's say God makes a statement which on his level of wisdom makes a lot of sense. Where I'm coming from, let's say I'm the most intelligent human being on earth. It doesn't make sense. Now, if I'm going to relate to God and say, you know, God is so wise, everything that he says doesn't make any sense. Right. Now, that is not going to be a realistic way for me to relate to God. Because I can't connect with something that to me doesn't make sense. If, to me, it doesn't make sense by, by my definition. If it doesn't make any sense to me, I'm not going to be enthralled with wisdom. To be perfectly honest, I'm going to be turned to awe, right? Because I can't, I can't get enthralled with a wisdom that I don't understand. And so too, when it comes to power, or when it comes to any element of God, at the point that I let's say it's Gavura, so I heard about Hercules, and I, I saw movies about Hercules, and maybe I can imagine something even greater than Hercules, maybe it's Superman, I don't know what it is, <laughs> but there comes a point, there comes a point past which I can't conceive of power, or I can't conceive of any element, and to a certain extent at that point, God becomes unreal, it's to it becomes a totally unreal situation. So if I would take any one aspect of God and try to quantify it and, and give it a qualitative definition, my human limitation would automatically either distort it or 
would not be able to relate to it in a real way because I lack the definition. I lack the association for it. Now, what would it come out to? What it would come out to is, I would love to know you, but I, I don't understand you. I can't conceive of your power. I can't do this. I can't do that. I don't know anything about you. You don't make sense to me. Your power is incomprehensible to me. Your compassion is beyond me. Right? That's a very fine, fond relationship. I mean, that's, that's, that's going to really get people fighting. That's what, that, this is the point that Ramesh Mahmoud is trying to point out. And this takes us back, it throws us back to what he said in the paragraph before. But he said in the paragraph before that you're going to get to know a part of God and it's only going to be a drop of the ocean. Now we have a little bit of sense why. Because in any one attribute of God, we're automatically limited. His wisdom we can't understand, his power we can't understand, his compassion we can't understand, his ability we can't understand. So what can we understand? Whatever it is, it's only going to be a drop in the ocean. Because anything can have that qualitative definition. Now, this has many implications, but I, I want to see this text inside first. It has so many implications, it's unbelievable. But let's, let's first see it inside. The theory. I want to show you. Any any of God's attributes, which are all without, limita- without limits, cannot be clearly understood by us. We don't have the ability to understand them. Derek Moshe, let me give you an example. We know, for instance, that God is wise. But we certainly can't comprehend the extent of that wisdom. We know that God is knowledgeable. And God is knowledgeable in ways far greater than our knowledge. Because God's knowledge is an inherent knowledge as opposed to a learned knowledge. Right. <coughs> but we don't know but we don't have a comprehension of this of what that means this knowledge and therefore the Zohar says you God are, are the epitome of wisdom but my connection to you is not because of being enthralled with your wisdom Unto Mavis, you're, you're uh, the epitome of understanding, but that is not man's realistic bridge, his human bridge to God. Right? And being that we cannot comprehend them, and since we can't understand them, we're not permitted to try to attempt to understand God in those ways. Because inevitably, what you will have to do is you're going to have to humanize and limit your definition of God to the extent that you can receive wisdom, power, or anything else. So therefore, not only can't we do it, but we're not allowed to define God in those ways because the definitions would be distorted. And upon all of this it says, that which is covered from you, don't get involved in it. The mechusim that which is covered, al Don't investigate those things because you just get far away from base. And so it says also, imras libcha shuvlamakai. If your heart runs out ahead, go back. Okay? Now, let me try to explain to you. This is a little bit parenthetical to the discussion, 
but there is a very, very profound concept here in these last words. In if your heart runs ahead, in other words, in trying to comprehend these things, go back to home base. Okay? Now, this would almost seem, this would almost seem to suggest that there is a place to run ahead, but you've got to make sure to get back to home base. If your heart jumps out and wants to perceive that unknown, make sure to go back, okay, make sure to go back to home base. And what is this? If it's not possible to do, if it's not possible to do, and it's not possible to comprehend, so then what's your business to be rough lipcha? So what is that a de- definition of? Is it only a definition of the person that made a mistake and ran out ahead? And we're giving them the advice, you ran out ahead, and there was a red light there, go back. It doesn't seem so. It should, then it should just say, don't go. But that's not what it says. It says in Rathlib Cheshuvah which almost suggests that there is a place to run out. But what's the place to run out if we don't have an ability to understand it? So the concept over here is, this is a very involved concept which Rabbi Dusty speaks about, which really originates in the writings of Rekhaim Velazhina, which essentially says the following thing. The Meshachim Lutzapa is now proposing for us that in our relationship to God, which comes through an understanding of God, we must deal with a definition that we can relate to. And we're having a tr- we're having trouble because of all of the elements, all of the aspects of God can ultimately not be humanly related to us. We can't understand them. Right? So what is whatever the answer is going to be, which is understanding his uniqueness, right? whatever the answer is going to be. Well, what is the premise? The premise is that we have to, within our human boundaries, be able to relate to God. Ah, so now there's a problem. Because if we forget about all of the other definitions of God, which are not definitions, (coughs) because we don't know the extent of them, and we only focus on our human ways of relating to God, if that would be the only thing that we did, so there would come a point that we would forget or we would lose touch with the fact that God is not our peer, that God isn't another person in our lives that we define. In other words, if we cancel out all the other definitions, we forget about all of the other definitions of God, and we're only going to use a definition which we can relate to as human beings. So then, what happens, what can happen from that, what's conceivable to happen from that, is that the person will now say, I have a whole world in front of me which I define, and thank God, within that world there's also a God which is also, I know the giraffe, and I know the zebra, and I know the elephant, and I know God, I know, and it's all one thing, and a person can then fall into the mistake of forgetting the extent of difference that exists between your definitions of everything else. See, if everything else you're defining, and you're defining God in a human term as well, so then in my own mind, I become acquainted with the fact that God's a definable. God's a definable. God's not an undefinable. God's a definable. Just like everything else is definable, this is also. So therefore, there is a function. Listen carefully. There is a function that we can always remind ourselves of the fact 
that God is an undefinable, and then we run back to the definitions that we can make of God. There's a balance when we relate to God, when we talk about God in the humanly related definition and the unhumanly related definition. And the function of that is just to keep a total perspective that as much as we are defining, we still remember the words of Lazada, that's only one drop in a big ocean. When man begins to think that his definition is the ultimate definition and not the drop in the ocean, then you get books like putting God on fire. That's when you get those kinds of books. Now, and that's why there's a balance where we try to talk about God in associations which are humanly <coughs> definable, and we constantly remind ourselves how spaced out the, a definition of God would have to be to be accurate. Now, it doesn't function to get us in thrall, but it does put us it does put the thing in perspective where we're coming from in our attempt. God is an undefinable in, in the sense of his exaltedness, and at the same time and at the same time, we then would give different definitions to God. Now, we're going to see where this comes up. But this is what the concept of, in one of the concepts of in Rashlut If you run out ahead, which has a time and place, Shuvlamakam. But don't say those definitions because those definitions will create all kinds of problems. You have to come back to the humanly defined part of how you can define God. What would be the error. What would be the mistake? What would be so terribly bad if if a person would try to go out into those realms? You know, I don't know. I can't define it, but it's something fabulous. <laughs> and just live with those kinds of definitions. What's wrong? By the way, I'll give you um, I'll give you an example of this dichotomy of definition or this dualism of definition of God. Let me give you an example of this from the Rosh Hashanah from our prayers of Rosh Hashanah. Within our literature of Rosh Hashanah, we talk about God in two ways, when he's judging his world. On the one hand, we say that God judges his world with one quick swoop and judges the entire world. The language in the Hebrew for that is the Sira Akka. With one swoop, he judges everybody. And then in another place in our prayers, it says, in one of the uh, one of the very moving prayers, we talk about how God judges each person and counts them as the shepherd counts his sheep as they come into the to the barn or into the school or whatever it is, in fact, one by one. What's going on over there? Now, the definition that in one swoop he he judges billions and billions of creatures is something that's really beyond them. Who do you know that can judge even one person? let alone millions and billions of creatures swiftly and all in one, so to speak, in one skiraha and do a right job about it. That's nothing that's within our conceptualization. Yes, talk about God, God takes out his time and goes one by one like the shepherd accounts the sheep. So that gives us some kind of, uh, we're being told that God does it precisely, he does it methodically. That we can relate to. Well, what's the purpose of talking about this one swoop in which he judges all creatures? The purpose of that is not to get an appreciation of justice. We're not going to get an appreciation of justice here. But it's a definition of the of the reminding man that as much as you're defining of God, 
you're nowhere near understanding the essence of God. There's no relationship, there's no association in terms of definitions between God and man. And it's important to keep that balance. Now, what, what would be the danger? Let's get back to the question. What would be the danger if I would come to Rosh Hashanah and I would not talk about God methodically judging every person like the shepherd counts his sheep? I would only try to relate to God as the God that, that uh, judges in, in the forms of, of Sirachas. God is so great. One swoop. And billions are judged. What would, what would be wrong? There would be two things wrong. First of all, I would not be able to be emotionally involved. Deep down, there would be a rejection process that would be going on, number one. Number two, there would be another problem that would come up. And this is a problem that came up countless times in, in history. And that is that you would eventually develop a philosophy that would destroy any kind of relationship between God and man. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. One, one particular philosophy goes the following way. Being that God is so great, and being that God is so undefinable, and being that we don't come anywhere near understanding these things, it can't be that God bothers with us. It can't be that he should he should be involved with us altogether. Who are we with our infinitesimal brains and infinitesimal potentials to assume or to have the chutzpah, the audacity to assume that God touches with us? We have to go through intermediaries, or maybe we don't even have to do that. Very orthodox, isn't it? We build God on such a high pedestal that we just eliminate the whole relationship between God and man. Now, if you think that this is hypothetical, it's not. This is exactly what happens. This is exactly... If you look in Maimonides, at the beginning of the laws of Avodah at the beginning of the laws of idol worship, when he discusses the history of idol worship, Maimonides says very clearly, what is the history of idol worship? It began with the philosophy of men that God is so great and so exalted and so undefinable that there is no reason to believe that our relationship should be directly with him, but should be through the secretary, or should be through the administrator, or the executive director, the sun, the moon, the clouds, the rain, or what other elements. And then my mind says that what slowly happened was that once God was taken out of the picture with quote-unquote orthodox calculation to begin with, Soon he was put away completely. He's in some ivory tower someplace. And if he is or if he doesn't have to do the world with the world, it's totally insignificant. I'm worshiping the sun, the moon, or whatever else there is. And that was an evolution that came from the extremity of that concept. On the other hand, if we only have the human definitions of God, then we will eventually treat God and judge God completely in human criteria, right? which will then lead us to be baffled by three quarters of what God does, which will again tell us that they can't be a God. So they're then again in, uh, without a God. So therefore there's always this equilibrium where we have both. That's the Imrach Lichle, if your heart does run out, does have certain, a certain sensation, a certain comprehension of the awesomeness of that undefinable, 
fine. That's a good experience. It should lamaka. But make sure that you get back to the definition that you can relate to and that you can emulate and have an appreciation of in terms of building a relationship with God. We'll talk about this more in questions. It's a very involved concept. But let's go a little bit further in this uniqueness concept. So what can we define about God? Yichudai. It's unique. Zem is galom is garlam abeirugama. That we can see. The nimshachlanu mizesh shalaydaishum is garolano, and not only does what evolves from this is that this is what becomes clear, clear to us. Ela shachayovim manachim lahashiv alibenu ayidiyah hazdaish. This is what we are looking for to see the uniqueness of God in the ways that He demonstrates His conduct. With kaliyaisabilavavenu, we have the requirement to firmly establish this through understanding in our hearts. The yishuv gamer with full knowledge, with a full understanding, the least can pick with fault, with any, without any doubt. Where do I get this idea from? Uh, where does this idea come from? And this is exactly what our greatest teacher, Meisha Pura, in the name of God, I want you to know today, and take it to heart, really know it well, that God is, is, is the God, is the master of the universe, in the heavens above, and on the earth beneath it. And then there's the word, and there is no other. That aspect is unique. And God gives testimony and witness upon himself, and he lets us know that if you want to know me, I'll tell you what you can know about me. Everything that will eventually come out of history is going to be one lesson, that God is supreme, God is unique. And all of the prophecies, now he's going to show you that all of the prophecies, when they speak about the ultimate realization, the ultimate states of awareness. What do they talk about? This supreme uniqueness. That's what they talk about. Now, if that's described as the utopia, that's described as the world coming to its fulfillment, obviously that is the definable and the, and the, the goal that we're looking for. Now, you're most probably still wondering why it's so important, but I'll, I'll give you some ideas of it in a moment. As it says at the end of Deuteronomy, I want you now to see Kiani Aniho. That's me. The Eno Kiani Marbi. And there is no other with me. In other words, that shares those abilities. And when was this first said by Moses? When was this said? After Apollo called Hagalgal, After the four years in the desert. I want you now to see or and in the prophet as well in Isaiah it says it very clearly I want you to know the Camino and I want you to believe this Avino and I want you to understand the it is all before me excuse me it is all before me there was nothing and after me there is also there won't be anything in other words that absolute existence of God there is nowhere else for me 
I'm running through this quickly because it's all to support the contention that the that the the the, the blissful state, okay, is this state of understanding this uniqueness. So commercial custom, let's just do the last verse. The Magnado, in order that it should be known, the Mizrach Shemesh from the east side of the world, Umi Ma'arav, and from the west side, the Ephes Bil There is nothing outside of me, and the Hashem there is only God and nothing else. Yet to Ayr, he creates light, Bayrechosha, darkness, Otashola. He, he is the one that will create peace, Bayrera, makes the possibility for evil in this world. Ani Hashem, Ayr says, Oh, Ayla. I do everything. I make everything. Now, let's stop here for a moment and let's try to relate this a little bit. Let's try to give it some, some kind of significance. Now, the Mashiachim Lestaka himself is going to ask the question that to say that the ultimate goal of history is to know that God is unique, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? We just said it. Everybody will be here. God is unique. <laughs> this is the Galba. This is what 6,000 years of history is supposed to be done. The God is unique. Like, what's the big deal? Okay, you're telling me that he's unique. Now I know he's unique. All right, let's go to the next thing. Right. All right. So, the much time not on this page, but on the next page, is going to get into this. Like, what's the big deal? That this should be the goal of the world. This is what we're waiting for to learn. Right. I mean, what's, what's the big deal? This is, a, this is an obvious question, so I'm not going to go through all of the parts. He, he, he essentially, he says that there are five major dimensions to the concept of uniqueness. And we don't take any of them too simply. So we'll see that next week. But for the time being, just to sort of see, wet our appetite for a little bit as to what conceivably can be this concept of uniqueness as it applies to our lives in particular. Let's give, let's give two examples. I'd like to give two examples. Maybe it's a little bit premature, but being that we're not going to get to that, if it fits there, it doesn't fit there, but I, I want to, if we touch on it, so, so our discussion today shouldn't be so terribly philosophical or abstract. There's two, there's two possible, there's two amongst uh, amongst the, uh, the, the various applica um, applications, there would, be, there would be two that I'd like to mention this time that are relatively easy to understand. One of them, let's take a, a story. Right, let's take a story first. When we take a story instead of our own lives, it's a lot easier to, to accept because we, we, we blame the other person for making a mistake. Um, <laughs> Let's take first man, Adam and Kaba, okay, as an example. Adam and Kaba are placed into Ganeda. They are given a challenge of trying to understand the concept of restriction and prohibition. Virtually everything in the garden is given to them, and one thing is held back from them. And they are to, to live for a, a certain period of time, trying to, on the one hand, see a tremendously good God who gives, who gives in a limitless way, 
and then be confounded by the fact that within that giving there seems to be one thing that spoils the whole picture. One thing that God says you can't have that. Uh-huh. Everything you can have yet, they come back. And a confounding command, like what, what's the purpose of this? You give me everything except one thing, and if you give it, give it ready. You know, what are you holding back for? It's a confounding thing. Philosophically, it becomes even more of a problem. What the whole concept of prohibition is, what the concept of restriction is. And if it's not meant for us, so what is it there for? It gets very involved. Uh, in any case, other Mauritian is brilliant. Other Mauritian is connected in ways spiritually to God that are phenomenal. Phenomenal. How phenomenal? The Medrash tells us that he was such a, a radiant spiritual entity that angels wanted to worship him, believing in that, believing that he was God. And it then became Adam's task to show to show them that there was a master that was above him as well. Right? We talk about Adam Harishan and his wife, Chava, in unbelievable spiritual awareness terms. Tremendous. Brilliant. All there. And n no negative thing. Nothing. And nevertheless, they had told one tree you can't eat. By the way, it wasn't an apple tree. But one tree you can't eat from. You can't eat from one thing. And it's a matter of not hours, but minutes. And they have to eat from the tree. And even when you're on a diet, you can usually have a few minutes. Minutes! And we're, we're not talking about, you know, estranged human beings from God. We're talking this is a world with God and two human beings in it. With total cognizance of God, a total awareness of God. And within minutes, they're munching on the <laughs> thing that they were told not to do. How do you understand? How do you comprehend it? There is no full answer for it that we can really understand. But with Meshachayim Lestasa, a little later on in this book, it says a very interesting concept. He says that after wisdom, and after intelligence, and after everything that's had spiritual connection, and a whole bit, there's still one element that a Jew needs in order to be able to develop. And that's the Muda. Trust. You can have all of the knowledge in the world, all of the understanding in the world, but in order for a, a relationship with God to become deeper and deeper and to proceed in a healthy fashion, there has to be a measure of trust. And moon is usually defined as belief. Adam had belief. The question was that behind the belief, trust. Now, what does it mean that behind the belief there should be trust? If you really believe everything that you believe, then you should trust them. Which means that if you honestly believe that I am the ultimate entity of goodness, dedicated to ultimate goodness because I am a perfect being, so then you should trust them. Now, in other words, it is conceivable that there are limitations in understanding God. It's conceivable that for the greatest there are limitations. As the Meshachai Mustafa is telling us so, so, uh, so, uh, so very precisely and so poignantly that there are limitations. 
And what other Marisha was missing was that little juncture. There's a little area that I don't understand that stuff. I don't understand why he threw this plastic restriction on me on the contractor's place. If it was, if it was, uh, if it was uh, a vine of some sort, if it was wheat, whatever it was, the different opinions exactly what it was. So what would have gotten other Mauritian from the bridge of his doubt and his being confounded by this restriction to be able to live with it for the amount of time that it would be, then become clear to him? The bridge, as much time as Sabbath says, was a mula. A belief that would translate itself into a measure of trust. That's what other Mauritian needed. He needed that now. But to be realistic, how do we trust? Now, there are certain terms which I don't think are accurate terms, and you might have heard of them. One of them is called blind faith. Right? Blind faith. And that happens to be, in my opinion, a horrible term. It belongs in the cult. It doesn't belong in Judaism. Blind faith is not a concept of Judaism. Because blind faith has a connotation, to the extent that it has a connotation, in inaccurate terms, that a blind faith means without reason. You can trust, but the trust is based on reasonability. In other words, in the final analysis, do I have a logical explanation for something? No, I don't understand the reason for this. But based upon everything else that I know to be true, there's a reason to trust. There's a reasonability to trust. The person goes out to the bus stop and he's waiting for a bus. Now, he's not waiting for the bus on blind faith. Nobody functions on blind faith. He's there because the bus has come there for the last 20 years. Sooner or later, the bus has come. So there's a reasonability to assume that it's going to come there. Does he know for sure that the bus is going to come there? No, he'll never know for sure that the bus is going to come there. But there's a reasonability. And when we talk about trusting God, that statement has to be qualified. That statement means that we're trusting God because we know enough about God that those areas that we cannot comprehend, but we're willing to trust. We're willing to trust. He knows what he's doing. I know him in this situation. I know him in this situation. I know him in this situation. I really don't know what he's doing here, but I'll trust. In other words, there's rhyme and reason to trust. You don't know the particular reason in this situation, but there's a rhyme and reason behind it. Now, what would have other Mauritians' rhyme and reason have been? So, one of the Hasidic masters says the following thing, and this is how it directly relates to this. You're wondering how it gets back to this. It relates in the following way. Other Mauritian is sitting under some tree, trying to analyze for a moment the restriction of God. And he gets the sense that God is a killjoy or whatever else it is. I don't understand this restriction. So, the Rosh Hashanah says, well, he didn't understand it. He had no way of understanding it. He should have just trusted. Now, but trust also means reasonability. What would it be fed his trust with? So, one of the Hasidic masters says, the uniqueness of God. 
In other words, if Adam Arishan would have reminded himself that as wise as God is, as good as God is, as compassionate as God is, I really don't have a way of comprehending the extent of that decision because God is unique in his wisdom. A context, just the concept of uniqueness of God's wisdom would have said to other Mauritian the following thing. Who am I to judge? Because even though it doesn't make sense to me, and it's absolutely no sense to me, but I know Yehudai. I know that God is unique. And if God is unique, there can very conceivably be a reason that he has that I don't have. That's where the concept of Yehudai plays, uh, plays a role. In other words, if I say that, to me it doesn't make sense, see Jews, very often this, this is going to come up in questions, I know, like how does this relate to us when we approach Yiddishkeit. But, but one of the things that comes up where there's a met, where a person where a person has a background of an understanding of God's wisdom right, and then comes to an area that he's stumped right, and says, I know definitely that it's this way, not the way that I've been instructed to do. As an example, right? Reminding oneself. Now, so there's two ways of God. So one way of going is, I really want to know what God is saying. I'm not going to do it unless I understand it. And I really want to know. So I'm going to try to become as wise as God and try to figure out God's wisdom in this particular instruction. That is going to fail. That's not going to work. Other Mauritian tried it and it didn't work. Elamai, so which way do you go? You go the way of trust. But trust also has to have a basis. Right? A person has to have a basis for it. So the basis of the trust would be, based upon everything else that God has done for me, I trust that he has my good intentions in mind. I, I don't understand how this is a, a manifestation of his goodness. God's wisdom is unique. It's, it's, it's of a unique nature. So how do I come to compare myself to that God? This would be one example of the relevancy of uniqueness without necessarily understanding the extent of wisdom. This is one area. Then there's there's another area, but I think for the for the purposes of this class, maybe this the second application I'll do next week, God willing. It's a little bit uh, gets more involved in what he's talking about next week. So I'll stop over here and I'll I'll open up the questions at this point. Yeah, I'm sorry. What was the apple? What was the tree? If it was an apple. Excuse me. If the tree was not an apple, it was. There seems to be a difference of opinion if it was if it was a vineyard, if it was pita, uh, if it was uh, related to the wheat family. And there is a third opinion. I'm not mistaken. That it was an apple. There's a three opinions. There's, there's a lot of uh, commentary on the significance of all of the different opinions. But no opinion says it was an apple tree, by the way. Yeah. Was the, um, last week you mentioned something about the relationship between Shakai and Mezuzah. Like, did you, you said you let us know why it's... I didn't do my own work. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
how could Adam not have been aware of the uniqueness if he said, I mean, with God, Adam? Oh yeah, this this question with Adam goes goes it goes on and on and on. Whatever you say, you still have another question for it. In other words, for how did he you know the uniqueness? So this goes into a very involved thing which Rabbi Bethel talks about, where he points to the fact that dealing with uniqueness is not so much an intellectual challenge to man as it can be a personality challenge to man. In other words, the the uh, the creativity, ego of man can sometimes resist having to live with a concept that constantly reminds him of a uniqueness that far outstrips his own, even if that's God. This is a, a it's, it's a very involved psychological mm-hmm. thing with That's the thoughts about it. That man being a creative being and struggling for a perception of himself that's very much tied to ego and things of that nature always struggles with a certain measure of, of wanting to accept himself, admittedly or unadmittedly, on some kind of a level near the existence of God. Now, that, that sounds very arrogant, and we don't, we don't verbalize it that way. But the thing that exists most strongly in our lives, even if we're very generous people with ourselves, in other words, the the the, uh, the contact that we have in terms of you'll you'll forget about anything and everything. The person will never forget about themselves, right? and you don't have to think about that. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fact. A person doesn't forget about themselves because it, it, a person puts pride to themselves is that they can't forget about it. Now, that has a lot of ramifications in terms of how it spills over when I have to stand before God and how I feel about myself relative to my standing in front of God. Right. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of this. This is what Rabbi Daskal says. And this is, is, this is something that's sometimes a little bit uh, difficult or it sounds like a rationalization or a little bit unbelievable. Um, but I'm not going to get in, we're not learning gracious now, but I just want to show you the example of what the, the struggle, the inner struggle can be all about. And what the Deathful maintains in, in his thesis about what went wrong with Adam and Kaaba, he maintains the following thing. He maintains that first man didn't, did not feel, because of the proximity of God and the heightened state of awareness of God, he did not feel that anything that he did had any meaningful significance or growth attached to it, because there was almost no choice involved in it. It's like somebody's breathing down your back, and while you can still do the wrong thing, but you know that a second after you do the wrong thing, the boom is going to be lowered on you. It doesn't. It doesn't really leave open any any choice. It doesn't leave open any creativity. Remember, that's what says the following thing. Adam Arishan had an extremely sophisticated Yetzirah. What was the sophisticated Yetzirah? God would be a lot happier with me if I would be able to flex my spiritual muscles by intensifying my challenge. 
even though God is in close proximity to me, he's in very close proximity to me, and in this close proximity I don't even feel that I'm choosing between right and wrong, there's only one way to go, I would prefer going at it on my own, distancing myself to a certain extent from God, and then, in my distance from God, then make my way back through choices. And then I'm going through a process of quote-unquote self-development. Then I'm going through a process of self-development. Now, if you laugh at this, uh, there are many common examples of this, of this theory. Uh, the person that tells you that you're not supposed to run away from any kind of challenge and that's being sissy-ish, and you're supposed to go out there and be confronted and, and contend with every challenge that the world has, and from that you grow. <coughs> you're to run head on into them. That would be an example of, uh, of, a, of, a, you know, of a definition similar to Adam. But Adam was coming from a place where he wants to express his creativity. Let me give you an example of this. Adam one of the things that came to Adam mind is, ah, God ate from this tree and from it he created the world. What is this supposed to mean is obviously Kabbalistic. But he said to himself, if I'll eat from this tree, I will also become a creator. What was Adam Harishan bent on doing? He wanted to be a creator. Not, not necessarily because he was on the other fence, on the other side of the fence, but he's on his side. But I want to be creative. And then God will be tremendously happy with me. I'll go through this whole thing and then I'll come out of it. Another example. God said don't eat from the tree. Other Mauritian came along and he became crumb. You're not allowed to touch the tree. So we have to be added in restriction. But that all came, that all came from the expression of creativity that he felt was lacking. What was it really? So Rabbi Dessel says in his particular case it wasn't a lack of, uh, of the availability of spiritual growth, but it was his inner struggle with ego that was going on. And the statement that Adam, that the Rabbi says is that people on the highest levels of spirituality sometimes have the most difficult struggles with ego because they are precisely so great they have sometimes the greater struggles than the people that are much lower and have nothing to be proud of to begin with uh, they sometimes there's um, a very interesting story that the, the kind of story is much more of an anecdote kind of thing where the Chayvah Kalvav said that there was once a, uh, a master that called in his disciples and asked them if they worked on all areas of, of character development. And they said, yeah, we've been plugging away for the last 34 years, and we think we have it more or less down. <laughs> so, the, so the master then said, now that you think so, now you have to start the hardest thing of all, and that being the challenge of Gaza, the arrogance and, and the ego challenge. So what Rebessa points out is, that on the highest levels of connection to God, a person has to constantly redefine his own identity vis-a-vis -vis God, which is a very, very intricate thing. It's, a, it's, it's such a complicated thing. I mean, we're not there. None of us are, are, are really there to get terribly involved in it, but it's an extremely complicated thing because you have to know the context of the definition, the application of the definition, because like I mentioned before, 
if the definitions go to extremes, you can knock yourself completely out of out of uh, out of out of a relationship, which was never intended. It was never intended to be the quality of what goes into the relationship. By the way, just uh, a little spike from the West Coast. Uh, a lot, a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, metaphysical. Um, ways that people deal with relating to God in terms of self-identities and all of this gets very messed up in this problem. In terms of who am I? Who, who am I really vis-a-vis uh, -vis God? And a lot of the foundations and premises, a lot of the, a lot of these um, different uh, ways and beliefs, if you want to call them that, have a lot to do with the difficulty in, in deciphering this problem. Yeah. I, I, I apologize for asking a question. I haven't been here, but um, just from what you just said, how could the relationship between you and God get messed up in a Jewish context if you carry it to the extreme? I mean, it seems to me the more, I mean, just from what I know, the more extreme one is, the more religious Okay. About. We explained before, so it's okay, a very to, to say it briefly, we explained before that the extreme means when we give definitions which we really don't have a way of relating to because we don't, we don't comprehend them, they're beyond our definition. Let's say you want to get really hyped up on God because you, you're enthralled with His wisdom, right? You can only be enthralled with His wisdom, that's your wisdom, because beyond your wisdom you don't understand God's wisdom. <laughs> You follow what I'm saying? Right. So, so there's a, uh, an automatic limitation. So then, what are you, right? So then, what are you going to say? I, I, all of what God says is doesn't make any sense to me, but I love it. It's not a, you can't relate to that. And if you have a lot of definitions like that, and those are your sole definitions of God, you sort of seek to make it a, an unconscious distance between yourself and God that makes the relationship unreal eventually. I've pointed out other examples before how uh, people made the, you know, then space God completely out of the world. In this in a practical sense, when we use words to define God, and we oh. see, well, like, okay, I'm a God, I'm a Giver, I'm a Giver, how are we supposed to relate to the sin? Very much, how we have to deal with that. I don't know if we'll get to it next week, but he, he's going to come back to that. He's going to come back to, to that, to that aspect. If we know God through what we experience, and even if it's beyond our understanding, why can't we know Him through some of His attributes? In other words, if He's very compassionate to us, shows us a lot of kindness, can't we know Him that way? Even though we say, okay, what I think is compassion is way different than you. The two of you should get together. Turn to her question. I just didn't want to get involved in it because of the sake of the concept that we were developing. I didn't want to start with it. But you're perfectly right. In other words, there is a certain revelation of things that appear to us to be defined in certain ways that we can say, you know, God's compassion in this situation was very similar to what my mother did to me or what my father did to me or what this other person did to me. We have, there are a lot of things that happen in our lives which we can give an association to uh, because we have comparisons of those things. That is, we have a tale, I go to, I give up on earth, I'm just, there are those kinds of 
there is the, that way of relating to God, which we're going to talk about. But that is not the only, right? But that can't be the sole way that we define God. S O L E, not S O D L. Well, if, if we if we if we know Him that way, we're not limiting Him in any way. We understand that the compassion we had, whatever well, that was shown to was not only, yeah. But we yeah, have to also remind it. ourselves that God's compassion is similar to the compassion that I might have seen and therefore understand God to have. But I also have to understand that there's a uniqueness in terms of its, of its, uh, of, its uh, of its expression that goes beyond any example that I've ever seen. The significance of that, uh, the significance of that is, is, is tied up with what we were talking about before, because there is a, a hidden side. There are hidden sides to God, and there are hidden aspects of God and conduct of God which lack definition. So if my total definition is what I can associate with other examples, then I'm going to be left uh, in a situation where I can't explain certain things, and then you know we're putting we're putting a god on trial because he he wasn't he wasn't nice today like he was yesterday. Well, that's what I have trouble with because it, when you when you have that experience, it, it's so good that you don't you don't want to ask certain questions anymore. I mean, before you had the experience, you had all kinds of questions, and after that's a while, true, you don't have them so much. You have a difficult experience after that. Human nature is that a good experience will cancel out what came before it, but will not cancel out a bad experience that comes afterwards. But you know there's a place to go if you have a problem in the future, because you know the last time you had a problem, you had a place okay, to go. So this is okay. So then there's already a frame. Of, then there's already a frame of reference. You're right. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to make the problem out of it, but it's 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 invariably it's not a soul. It's, there's a danger in it being a soul definition. I'm not saying it can't it can't be, but there is a big danger in it being a, a soul definition of Hashem. I was going to say that it seems a little presumptuous to me to even try to define God in terms of. Uh, compassion or any other level because then we get in practice again because we're defining God and then we move the line. I really I see that you're getting literally into this and I, I really want to hold it off. Y- your question is 100%. It's an, it's an excellent question. It's very this whole issue. I want to I want to do it inside the text inside so he, he deals with this. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of tension in this in this definition of God and can you do it, can't you do it, why is it important to do it. I, I want to really wait till we're here in the text. It's, it's, it's coming up uh, within the next few lessons. It's best to wait for it to see it in terms of people develop it. You know, you take both sides of it, yeah. When confronting a situation or a myth or anything that you don't understand, what is the attitude that should be taken? Let me try to understand to the best of my ability and whatever is beyond my comprehension, I trust or I will use belief. Or I believe. Okay, let me see what I can understand. Or does it make a difference? Mm, That's a good question. (laughs) If confronting something you don't understand, a myth for anything, Okay. What is the attitude you take? I'm just going to try to understand to the best of my ability, and whatever is beyond my comprehension, I will use faith. Or, I believe and I have faith. Now let me see what I can understand. Or does it make a difference? Are you asking which one comes first and yes. which one comes second? Um, 
friendship and compassion. Mm. Um, I don't know if I should have to say so if I should try them. I would say, I would answer the question in with uh, two, two points that I think have to be kept in mind. The first point that I would say is that the, that the answer to that question differs from individual to individual. I know you like to hear those questions. <laughs> <laughs> what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is like this. Just based upon what I was talking about before, uh, in terms of is that the concept of trust is built on a certain measure of reasonability. If a person, for instance, is at, at the very beginnings of Yiddishkeit and is exploring the very, in the very early stages different mitzvahs for the first time, tell a person that the way to go for that person when he is disturbed is not being able to understand this, which is first trust and then later on you'll slowly understand things going that way is, is, is usually not going to work. First of all, it's not going to work practically speaking because most people are not going to be willing to do it that way. Number two, I'm not so sure that it's 100% correct to demand of a person utter in total faith without any sense of reasonability. If the person already was exposed, let's say, let's give an example. Let's say a person struggled with the midst of Shabbat and walked into the midst of Shabbat really having difficulty understanding it. Understanding it enough that he would try it for one week. And then all of a sudden discovers that it's a lot more than he ever would have imagined. <laughs> then he comes to the second mitzvah and he says, okay, let's try the this, this second mitzvah. And again, it doesn't make any sense to now borrow his experience from his first mitzvah and say to himself, listen, don't you know yourself? Don't you know that the other mitzvah you swore had no basis? And then after hearing some reasons and going ahead to do it, you were then opened up to a whole area of appreciation and understanding. So over here also, don't demand necessarily of yourself the same amount of understanding before doing some amount of understanding before doing Notice what I'm saying is that when a person is entering it from the very, very outset, he might have much more of a need to understand before doing, and that's legitimate. And he'll need, would I say that he has to have virtually a total understanding? No, because it's not possible. But if he comes with a demand, I really want some rhyme and reason, I want to have a way of relating to this, that would be correct. But as a person develops, and as a person builds a, a trust that that a lot of things do make sense and, and, and the person comes to realize that by doing the reasoning itself becomes expanded and the person begins to realize slowly the person can, can move in a direction where he is willing to, to, um, to get involved uh, in, within a trust relationship and then get deeper and deeper knowledge of understanding. So I would say it's process. It's certain, to begin, it certainly has to start with understanding, coming, coming to them, building a reasonability to trust. And as the person grows, his reasonability to trust will maybe will give him an ability to move ahead closer and and access himself to experience, which will also expand his 
is understanding. See, that's an element that's always left out, that always has to be realized. It's not one or the other. It's not trust and understand later, understand and then develop the trust. There's another element that is that trust becomes a tool of understanding. And understanding becomes a tool of, of trusting. They assist each other. And when a person begins to recognize that process, right, a person who, then a person is willing to, to make the balances different. When a person, when it's his first myth, he's trying to explain it to me, how it makes sense in the 20th century, otherwise it's no good, and I refuse to do it, it's totally acceptable when a person's moving in. But at a certain point in time, a person has to realize the fact that trusting and experiencing has a way of expanding the horizons of understanding. That right? it lends to the understanding. And and things did make sense, and that's when there's this transition into the other direction. At what point that happens is, is, is something that has to be measured individually. There are different levels of resistance that people have. For some people, a few minutes can, can always try to open up a sense of, of, uh, of wanting and trusting and learning. And for others, it can be a bitter fight through many, many mixes before the person finally says, okay, I give up. This just seems to make sense. It's different for different people. There's no, and it has to be measured for every person. I mean, it's not a cop-out answer. It really has to be measured differently. I mean, I remember so vividly somebody who came into my office that was interested in making certain, let's say, adjustments in his life. And, uh, and he said that in terms of pressure, he swears by who knows what <laughs> that there is no rhyme or reason for it. He said, I am going to continue eating rattlesnakes. I am going to continue eating lobster. I was about to throw up right said, and you will never convince me that there's any rhyme or reason to it. Absolutely. Today he's cautious, by the way. But I'm just saying that this, you know, that kind of a person, if you to answer that kind of person, you've got to trust them. Right? <coughs> you know, that kind of person, you have to trust them. Then you have to sit down. You've got to go through reason. You have to develop an appreciation. Okay? And then when it comes to the next mission,
just an excellent question. It's a beautiful question. Uh, let, let me, uh, w as I was saying it, I thought of that question. Um, <laughs> the answer to that is, follow is, is the following. The closest and the greatest and the fulfillment that comes from it, you are 100% right. Without not, uh, without action, will never happen. I'll explain to you why. Because as much as you know another individual and you appreciate the other individual for who the other individual is, the relationship will not be bonded unless you are willing to do for the relationship. And that you can take what you feel and what you say that you emulate, you look up to the other individual and concretize that by action that proves it. Let's say you go over to an individual just as a simplistic example and say, you know how you're doing this. <laughs> you know, you mean so much to me. Your kindness, your this, your that. You're full of adjectives. And I would like so much to be like you, and this is my attraction to you, my closeness to you. And then she says, can you please do me a favor? <laughs> There's nothing that's going to go into this relationship. I just adore you. I want to be with you because you mean all of these things to me. And in the reality, the person doesn't do any of them. They, you know, they look up to them in another person, but they never get from adoration to doing in one's own life. Right? There's something very, very missing. In a relationship, it's not going to build. The relationship will not build because there's a certain left. I can understand and, and, and understand something very, very well and adore it. But until I bring it into my life <coughs> and I, I make it part of my life in terms of my own doing, there is still a distance from it. The fact that I adore it is an indication, is an indication that I have.